you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. My friends, I want to bring you back to a time of great uncertainty. It's March, it's 2020, and there was rumblings of a novel virus sweeping across China for weeks and even months. And then suddenly, and then seemingly overnight, it entered into Italy, remember those days, throughout Europe, eventually into the United States, and of course, beyond. COVID ended up in each of our backyards as state of emergencies were issued, stay-at-home orders were mandated, and the doors to schools and offices and businesses were shuttered. The fear of what was to come was undeniable. And yet, our essential healthcare workers that courageously risked their own lives to fight for the lives of their patients, all of that while being woefully unprepared in terms of sufficient PPE, ventilators, and ICU beds. Today, we're going to be joined by one of those leaders. We're joined by Dr. Calvin's son. He's an emergency room physician who tirelessly worked in seven emergency rooms in New York City from the onset of the global pandemic. Drawn upon those lessons he learned from his adventures traveling to more than 190 countries before the pandemic in 10 years, as well as from the grief he experienced when he, as a teenager, lost his father. Calvin's going to share his story growing up as a young Asian American in New York, finding his life's purpose, dealing with COVID-19 in New York, and now the lingering PTSD that he and many other healthcare workers face. My friends, regardless of our opinions politically or on masks or on COVID or on responses or on what the next right step is locally, nationally, or internationally, this conversation is going to help reframe moments in our lives of anxiety, of tragedy, of uncertainty into series and moments of possibility, hope, and reason to believe that the best is yet to come. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to my new friend, and it is soon to be yours. His name, Dr. Calvin Sun. Dr. Calvin Sun, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you for having me. It's grateful to be here. Man, I've, I've loved learning about your story. I read your book. I listened to your interviews. I watched your TED Talk. I feel like I'm, I'm hanging out with a friend right now. But for my friends who tune in, whether they are my parents or listeners in 100 countries tuning in from around the world, if you had to introduce yourself today, how would you introduce yourself? 
well, seeing that we're starting off as friends, you can call me Calvin. And I am currently actually at home in New York City, not in a far-flung place. And I am just someone that is going through the world uh, and making the most out of it and just, just living with gratitude and, you know, making the most of everything that, of all the time that we have here. Well, the reason I, I began the interview by bragging on, you know, a hundred different nations tune into the Live Inspired podcast is because you've been in more than a hundred nations. You, you're a global traveler, prolifically so. But before that, you were a very relatively ordinary little boy growing up in a very ordinary family. So we're going to take the train, take the plane mm. all the way back. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your childhood. What was life like for you growing up? Oh, you want to go there? Yeah, it, it's it's tough. Uh, I'd write about it in the book a lot uh, as a form of, thera- of a form of therapy, and it was very nice to re-examine my life through the words of just putting it to paper. And now that it, I'm giving this answer, looking back, it was complicated, complex. Right. Uh, I'm I'm very grateful, and I want to channel that. I don't want to sound like I took anything for granted. I have had a roof over my head. They gave me an education. My parents, my father, my mother really cared about making me as successful as possible. But I think in their eyes and to no fault of their own, their language and their way of expressing that love language to me just happened didn't, uh, to not coincide with mine, this little boy growing up in New York, which also I'm grateful for. And over time, I've developed this individuality where I put a family inside my head that differed from the family I was growing up with. And I had to reckon with that, which led to a lot of conflict and cognitive dissonance. Right. Um, yeah, my father had all these expectations of me that I didn't know whether these seeds were planted in me by him or by me because of him. And my, my mother was, her, was, was his lieutenant. And therefore, two tiger parents trying to get me to be X for the best of intentions. But for me, I was growing up wondering, well, they have great intentions, but we judge other people by their behavior and not, and only ourselves by our intentions. Their behavior in getting me there is, is, is getting me to a place where I'm not happy. Yes. And I didn't know where that was coming from. You talked about the tiger parents. You've written about it. You've shared it in a TED Talk. Talk a little bit about first your mother, the way she raised you, and then your father, who had a, a pretty heavy hand in what he imagined possible in your in your life going forward. Right. I, I mean, I use the word lieutenant for my mother because it was kind of like a military barracks where things got not just emotionally difficult, but physical. And, you know, it's it's something that a lot of first generation or immigrant populations can relate to, or just difficult households where when people cannot communicate through words or emotions, they lead to communication with physical means. So my mother and my father uh, were very absent during the first part of my life physically. So when they were with me, uh, the times that we were together, it was explosive. So it just made up for lost time. So what that meant was my father had a, a business in Connecticut So he was there from Mondays to Fridays and always back on the weekends. So I only saw him two days a week. And uh, my brother reminds me that I was, I would be relieved when he was gone rather than wanting to be there. But that, that was, I was, there was a sadness in that relief getting meta here. My mother had to take care of a a motel property that uh, in New Jersey. And so I was raised by babysitters for a lot of the time, but when she was home, it would just be all this pent up 
I think, resentment, anger, uh, disappointment. Yeah. And they would lay it out on me. And, you know, I, I, my, my brother is 14 years older and he's my half brother. I mean, I, I love him like a true brother, but he was growing up in California. So I was alone and I didn't really have any support network other than my brother, when he came to visit maybe once every year for a week at a time, just putting things in perspective. So that was my definition of a family with no other means to relate it to other than, you know, my, my high school, my, my middle school, my grade school, seeing other families that were a little more cohesive. Your parents expected excellence from you. Yes, they did. I, I think for most of our listeners who are parents right now, we, we hope for great things for our kids, but your mom and dad demanded it. Just talk, talk about that really unmeetable expectation of perfection in all things that you do. Oh, it's excruciating when, you know, a relationship fails because of failed expectations. And that's like probably one of the biggest reasons why most uh, human relationships become disappointed or they feel they didn't live up because they set expectations before getting to actually know the person. And I don't know if my family, because they were away for my, my mother and father being away for work for so much, uh, knew me as well as my, my babysitters did, right. but yet still had these expectations as if they knew better. Uh, and to no fault of their own. I mean, that's what guardians and parents want for their kids. Uh, but there is the legwork that one needs to do before you set those expectations for any loved one. And I think a successful relationship, whether it's between two partners or a family, is doing the work of getting to know one another and then building things organically. Obviously, this is not me as a precocious six-year-old knowing this. This is me writing a book and then looking back and like, oh, this is why. Uh, that's why it's, it was a form of therapy. So I'm, I'm knowing all this after the fact. But growing up, I was just confused, knowing that something was wrong, but I couldn't put a word to it. So now that you uh, recognize something uh, was a little bit off, what, what was off? It wouldn't be a word. It would be a phrase. It would be a way of communicating love and expressing it. And... I wish that there was a space in which uh, my family could create for me to really get to know me uh, mm. and build on that. So I, I say the last part because my father did try at the very end of his life, a week before he died, there was a moment where he actually built that space of expressing love, where we were at a buffet restaurant and he sat down and he told me for the first time that he was like, you know what? I am proud of you. And I was like, I almost choked on my food and didn't know where it was coming from. But then he was like, I, I don't know why I'm saying this and I'll tell you yeah. eventually. So that was a space. And I think I was, oh, like really just, it was like the Joan Didion moment where her, hus her late husband, our late Joan Didion, where her husband uh, says that you should do this. And just, it was something subtle when he knew uh, rather than we should do this. And then, you know, my dad a week later died from a sudden heart attack after an argument. And I never knew where that was coming from unless he kind of subconsciously, something out there made him say that. But we didn't build. You mentioned the argument, you mentioned your father's sudden death. What has remained left out to this point is that the argument was with you, that I, I believe you were 19 years old and um, you know, things got heated again. Talk, talk about that argument. Talk about what happened afterwards. I mean, it was one of many arguments that now in the context of his death, I feel responsible for indirectly. I have had a lot of people tell me, no, it's not your fault. How could you have known? 
but you know, one thing leads to another that leads to another. And we all feel some sense of ownership of, of a tragedy. And this is how I think I've chosen to heal. Uh, maybe it's not healthy for other people, but what happened was my father and I got into another argument about my future and not being a you know, stellar student as, as good as he wanted to be. And obviously I stand up for myself and yell back. I'm not someone to, you know, by principle, uh, give in and yield so easily. And I storm out under the guise of telling him I'm going to go to work. But, you know, I see a few friends just to decompress before I get to work. And he would go off to uh, run on a treadmill, where blow off some steam at the New York Sports Club. And uh, that would be the impetus that stress plus a treadmill would cause a sudden massive heart attack, his first and last, and something that we none of us had expected because he right. uh, thought that he was going to live forever. And we all thought that he was going to live forever. So getting that phone call a couple hours later uh, was a shock. You lose your father. You're a young man, 19 years old. How did that begin to change the arc of what you would end up doing professionally? It was so complicated that I had begun this process of trying to figure out who I was at the age of 18, 19, that time, you know, when you're a sophomore, for me, I was about to start my junior year and my undergrad. Uh, and I was thinking about where I belonged and the thought of the thought, you know, was my path to becoming a doctor coming from my father or coming from me? Did I want to be a doctor or do I want the want to be right. a doctor? And during that time, his sudden death, and maybe I'm reframing it. I mean, you know, our parents die eventually, all of us. I think the way he died suddenly and during a time where I was in the middle of things and figuring things out, it was both, and this is how I heal, and it sounds wrong when I say it out loud, but a curse and a blessing. It was the worst and possibly most impactful, somewhat of a complicated positive summer of my life where I had a space now to actually think for myself without the bolder and noise trying to tell me what to do and clouding my worldview of just being able to think for myself. And I felt like I was living a double life, thinking my own thoughts, but also being affected by them. And then it started conflating and I didn't know which was, you know, what, what, where my thoughts, where did I begin in my thoughts and where did he begin? So when he was gone and my mom had been diagnosed with Parkinson's at the time from something very complicated, car accident, depression, and, you know, getting married too early to my father, which that's what she claims uh, that, you know, she was just going through a lot of stress. She had to live with my grandparents, her parents in, in Queens after the death. So I had the whole summer just living by myself. You know, after the family left, that the funeral was over, I was totally alone. And that space was a sudden shock for me where I needed to figure out, you know, okay, do I just keep living or do I use this as a means to finally understand myself. And I decided not to become a doctor because that was the most obvious answer. Oh, like, oh, it's so obvious. My dad wanted me a doctor. I don't know, think if I want, I don't think I wanted to be. So I decided not to. And I was so happy. I was free. And my grades plummeted. I, you know, really worked hard on my, you know, my extracurriculars and student council and dancing. And the last two years of my undergrad, my junior and senior year, you'll look at my transcripts. It went nosedived. But I was happy. I was living my own life. And there was no one, no accountability, no father waiting for me, no screaming at the end of the road. You know, I would, as long as I stayed above minimum and graduate, 
um, I, I was generally felt so this, this liberation. My father instilled a sense of rebellion, I guess, his presence. So I was just like, I'm rebelling against you. I'm finally living for myself. After a while, that space to yourself, this constant thinking led me to a, a place where I was like, am I now wanting to not be a doctor or do I want the want not to become a doctor? Because the decision not to become one is still affected by my father's <laughs> presence. It's so layered. Yes. Yeah. I think this is something we all wrestle with is getting clarity around the real call of our lives. Yeah. How did you get, how did you get clarity around the calling of yours? It was when I lost a wager uh, to someone while bartending for an after party uh, in, <laughs> the, in Midtown West. The best bet you ever lost. The best bet I've ever lost that led me to Egypt 36 hours later. It was, it was the representation of that, uh, that, that life just throw things at you. And it's not about the right or wrong decision. It's what you do with it. And it, it taught me that just do it like Nike. <laughs> it really means something where, you know, it, 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 the answer will reveal themselves after the fact and not necessarily before, you know, you don't have to know everything. And that wager was, I was not traveling at the time. I've been to what, two countries, three countries uh, by myself, one country by myself at that point, uh, and on a layover. I was alone for maybe a few hours, <laughs> but never really traveled alone, never decided to travel alone. And uh, what happened was I met somebody that challenged me to, you know, go to Egypt with her. Uh, and who am I to say no? But at the time, I was very reluctant. And I just needed something to get me an out. And that was all oh, go tickets are under $800. Uh, and then a few hours later, tickets dropped from 2000 to 650. And before I knew it, I was in Egypt with someone. I was like, who are you? What's your name? <laughs> uh, and it was, it was, and I hated it actually. The first week I was like, this is not meant for me. Traveling is stressful. I feel like I'm going to die every minute. I can't, I can't speak. The, I don't speak the language. No one can communicate with me. It didn't, it didn't come to me until three weeks into the trip where I was like, oh, I think I get, I'm getting the hang of this. Three weeks of that, kind of that summer when my dad died when I was totally alone in my thoughts. But this time, no internet, no one could reach me. And I can come back just a little with a little more clarity. Mm. And then I was like, oh, it took me three weeks to love something I initially hated. How do I know the same thing applies to becoming a doctor? So let's, let's take a bet. <laughs> I, we both know that I didn't do well uh, in my transcripts, uh, my grades, I'm not that great of a MCATS uh, test score that I took and I didn't want to retake it. And then the bet was just applying. And obviously, uh, saner minds would look at my record and they've been doing it for a while and say, this man does not deserve to become a doctor. <laughs> uh, I think my, my advisors was like, you know, I don't know, like, I, I will support you because that's our job, but it won't be enthusiastic, but we'll do our best. And then one, and then one school took me. And I, I love the way and the reason why they took you. It, it wasn't because you had the highest MCAT because your transcript sung louder than and better than anybody else's. Mm -hmm. They took you because they were looking for an edgier, more human, more empathetic type of physician going forward. That's going to come into play in a big way a few years down the path. So just talk about the need for physicians to be human. I am so grateful to the person that took a chance on me or all the people that took chances on me. Yeah, they had told me, you, may, you, not, you are not our typical conventional 
medical school applicant, but your stories, the way uh, we talk about life and the way you look at life and the way you've overcome tragedy and still are, are living with purpose, even when you don't know what your purpose is. And you're very honest and candid about not knowing if you're meant to become a doctor. And here you are still applying. Like we can't get you out of our head. And therefore, you know, why not? Like we, we, we'll, we'll give you a chance. We're looking for a different kind of doctor in the first place. This humanity, you know, doctors with a sense of humanity and, you know, more than just studying all the time. And I was like, are you serious? Like, is this really happening to me? I mean, for those who are struggling with imposter syndrome, I'm one of them. Imagine if someone actually confirmed to you that you did get through the back door and you are the imposter. That was even like, I still, I know that the opportunity afforded to me by this medical school, uh, SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn, uh, was, it is an opportunity that most people would kill for. I did not want to squander that. I knew the, the impact. I was, it wasn't something like a, a flippant cavalier thing that I was deciding. Like I knew it meant a lot and I knew it was the next step didn't know what it meant but as you said it wouldn't reveal themselves those reasons reveal themselves until the time you know the, the themes I mentioned in the book about being there in COVID and being to see the big picture when most other healthcare workers we were just uh, we were all I mean we, all of us were grinding in our nose into the in the the trenches but that experience and the ones that build upon that building that on on that decision to accept me in the medical school allowed me to go in with a bigger picture of working at many different hospitals and choosing to do that. So I didn't feel that I was completely abandoned. I mean, if you work in one hospital all every day for COVID, you're kind of in a silo. You don't know what's out there. And it's always nice when we're struggling to hear someone else saying, hey, I'm going through this too. And for me to come in from other hospitals and say, hey, you're not the only one that doesn't have masks, <laughs> that doesn't have PPE. It's every hospital, even the rich one, even the ones that, even the private ones, it's not just the public hospitals. And they're like, really? And it's, and it's like, I heard about this, but there's nothing about actually living this and coming back and saying, that. I think it was helpful for all of us to have that bigger perspective. But that's, I think the decision to apply to accepting med school was the bigger picture. They saw the bigger picture in me in a way that I didn't even see. You talked about one of the very first days at med school, they had you look to the left and to the right. And then they said, uh, high likelihood that those people that you're looking at will not be here upon graduation it becomes this highly competitive, maybe even combative type setting. And yet there are moments and examples of grace and love and empathy. And one of them is Sonia. Would, would you talk about one of your friends that you made and what happened to her in med school? I'm here because of Sonia. Yeah, she, she should be here with me. She should yeah. be giving this interview. She was sitting next to me on a bus shuttle, a shuttle bus ride from uh, my undergrad campus to the medical campus. Uh, to Washington Heights, and she was so gracious in telling me that I was doing everything wrong. <laughs> you know, this is this is a time when I was like, I think I could do med school. I don't know the GREs, and she was like, No, no, no. And I was like, I'm oh, we're, we're like working in a lab. She's like, No, no, no. You need clinical with patients, not in the lab. You need to be studying for the MCATs, not GRE. And she literally gave me everything. She gave me the opportunity to volunteer. She referred me to volunteer at Bellevue Hospital, at the emergency room there as a paver, the patient advocate volunteer in the emergency room, which I did for two to three years. So grateful to her because if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have known about it. I probably wouldn't have gotten in with it weren't for her recommendation, but she was one of their top students uh, and volunteers. The irony is that when I 
gone to medical school and I wanted to check in on her and just celebrate with her, it was the discovery that she didn't get in that cycle. It was something wrong with her application process. And then a year afterwards, I found out that she died from breast cancer at the age of 24. And that didn't sit right with me. That felt so unjust. And it was something that I took it really personally, um, even though it had nothing to do with me. I, I just felt like it was just not, I felt, I felt wrong being in a position that she deserves so much more to be in. And there was no, I mean, she knew I'd gone to med school and she was so gracious in that too. She's like, you're going to teach me, you, you know, you owe me uh, when it's time when I'm one year under you and, you know, it's considered a um, square once, you know, you, you, you teach me all the stuff that you learned a year ahead of me. Uh, and I never got that opportunity. Mm. And it's, I mean, the best I can do is every patient I see is her patient. She lives through me. Uh, that is the way I can reconcile that feeling of injustice. It's not, it doesn't feel fair. But that's that's Sonia, and she, I, you know, I, I, you know, think of her of her with love and gratitude. You mentioned in the answer right there about Sonia about the uh, introduction to the emergency department that she was part of the reason for that. Uh, Calvin, I've I've spent some time in the ED, man, both as a patient and then secondarily as a hospital chaplain. And the types of folks who choose the emergency department are a different type of breed, man. They're not the kind who work at ER, Gray's Anatomy. It is um, it is a tough place to work because you never know what the day is going to bring. And they usually are exhausting. They beat you up. And those are during the best of times. What is it about the ED that attracted you to choose that as uh, where you would ultimately make your impact? You want the real answer? Yes, the, of course. I, I was asked this in... Uh, my application to residency after med school when everyone thought I was not going to get to residency. The cycle is, seems familiar. And when <laughs> my interviewer asked me this question, I did not prepare. I said the most candid, honest answer was, uh, it's, the, it's like the best job that I've ever had. And they were like, what job was that? Bartending. <laughs> because it is. And I'm like, oh my Lord, like this, that, all right. It's the same thing. I'm in an emergency room. You're behind a row of computers. In a bar, you're behind a row of bottles. Right. You don't know who's going to come in. Every shift in a bar is like every shift in the in an emergency room where you, you have to take care of everyone. You don't know who's going to come in through that door and it's full of surprises and you just got to make do. Uh, and similar method of working. You got to move as fast as possible to take care of as many people as possible if it's crowded. But you can't move too fast, but you can't move too slowly either because everyone else is waiting on their drink or being serv serviced. So I took that skill and I would have a bartending shift right before an ER shift as a med student. So I was able to carry that, uh, the energy and it was seamless and it was ironic. I didn't expect that at the time. So a lot of the, the, the reviews uh, and the, the feedback I got was he functions like a resident. Like he has this energy that these med students don't. So I stood out because of that skill set that I didn't even know was applicable until somebody asked me, why do I want to do ER? So when it came to interviews, it was the same dance again, where I had to explain for a lower record, but they were very impressed by how I stood out in terms of what we had talked about, the, the bigger picture, the doctor as a person, as a human being at your bedside, uh, to be able to connect under high stress situations of a 12 hour to 16 hour shift, uh, and being to maintain that humanity. And I was able to do that as a bartender. And I think I carried that forth you know, in my emergency room shifts. So you 
carried forward as a bartender, graduate from medical school, carried forward as an ED doctor. Congratulations on that. But you're not done traveling. Talk about monsooning. What, what does that term mean for you? And uh, talk about some of your travel experiences. Yeah, monsooning is a travel style and concept that my co-travelers named for me. Uh, it's referring to the title of my travel blog that I started in 2010, The Monsoon Diaries, which is now the title of my book. The people who had traveled with me uh, would see the way I traveled uh, as very fast, dynamic, adventurous, uh, spontaneous. And when we would come back, we you know, were able to resume our day jobs or as in my um, context, a medical student, I resume my classes. So we would leave on the weekends or anytime we would have one or two days off. And they would call this style monsooning, like, wow, we can literally travel the world without having to give up our day job. That's monsooning. And I'm like, oh, you know, that, that's cute. I like that. You know, I'm not going to. But then it stuck because people started calling it more and more. And, you know, I'm just Forrest Gump running around the country, just doing my thing uh, with a group of people behind me saying right. I'm with him and this is what we're going to call it. Who am I going to fight that? So I, that, that monsoon is an organic definition that has defined itself. And I'm grateful to the people who have come along with me to give me that term. We frequently look across the aisle and see people that we will never see eye to eye with and could never like. How could we like those Republicans or those Democrats or those people who have no foundation and they're somewhere in the middle? How, how dare they? We sometimes look across and see skin tone that we don't identify with and can't connect with. You've been all around the world. You've seen people who act, look, worship, <laughs> live radically differently than maybe many of us here in the United States. What, what have been some of the things that have surprised you most in your travels, in, in the humanity, and in the way that we are far more alike than we are different? And that's what surprised me that in going to those places, especially the way we travel right now so quickly. I can leave right now and be in the Azores in nine hours. I mean, I just came from there two days ago, or Cape Verde in 11, 12 hours, and then be dropped in the middle of a capital city and see how other people live. That is, as you said, so different from the way we live right now here at where I am in New York City or where you are in St. Louis. And these things are happening the same time as where, what we are doing right now in this podcast. This is not our only reality. There are other realities happening at the same time we are on this three-dimensional space. And to just know that you know, the kids playing soccer in the middle of a, a lonely field in South America right. or people wa walking miles to get water. That's happening right now. And that's their normal. And you come back with this understanding that it's easy to think, oh, everything's meaningless. I'm just this tiny little speck of stardust in this giant universe and all these things are happening. And I'm, I mean nothing by traveling these places and being a wallflower and knowing that these things happen without me. But then if you keep thinking about that, the surprise, then something in your soul stirs. If you go in with that frame of mind, realizing that this is meaningful, that all these things are happening and their realities are just as impactful uh, as Monday as they are, as the realities I'm having right now. And then you can look at the world with different kind of clarity that everything is purposeful or can be purposeful and meaningful if you choose to see it that way. But when you travel and actually see it in, you know, instead of Google images, you actually see it, you hear it, you taste it, you feel it. Yes. That's like the, the best movie you've ever watched in your life where you're, you're, you're plugged in, you're, you're done. You know, you're totally in it, but that's your life. You can feel the wind on your back and then come back with a visceral understanding that other, there are other things out there and there's really no right and wrong, no black and white. Uh, it just is. <laughs>
from Angola, which we'll come back to here in a moment, to North Korea and just about everywhere in between you've been, you've stepped foot into. What was a place where you went that you maybe weren't expecting much and you left changed? I mean, this past trip in Cape Verde I spent last week, I was just so surprised how relaxed a capital city could be. Completely quiet. We were in the center of the center. I think it's just beautiful to know that there are the biggest capital cities uh, of what people see as frenetic and chaotic have their moments of peace. People would go to, you know, yoga retreats in Thailand or, you know, or, or Vipassana retreats in South Asia and come back with Zen. I and mean, those are the obvious. I mean, you will get that. But for me to go to a capital city in West Africa, on an island archipelago country of West Africa, that was going to be, you know, with the markets and yeah, there's a lot of people there, but to come back with the feeling of Zen, I realized that you bring that with you. Mm. You can bring that, uh, the meditation and Zen with you. It doesn't have to be the context and circumstances around you. You can define those circumstances. Um, but I think I arrived at that point by having traveled so much and having different experiences and coming back and reflecting or writing about it. You know, even the craziest of things, you can find that calm, even in emergency rooms. Oh, what a great pivot. Let's, let's come back to the emergency room. Let's come back uh, to 2020 when the world is going to change in a profound way. It remains changed even today because of it. You are, I believe, in Angola at the time. And there's whispers of this, I think they called it a coronavirus influenza that was beginning to spread, you know, kind of poorly named. Talk about where you were and what you were seeing and and, uh, eventually they moved back to New York. Yeah, we were watching the news in Luanda and Angola about the border flight. And we were looking at each other and we were like, are we like, I, we felt safe. I mean, Angola had posters about coronavirus precautions. They were taking our temperatures everywhere. This is February of 2020. Everyone, there was PPE everywhere. We were washing our hands and it was like, this didn't happen in New York airport when I left. This is not a JFK when I left. But we were watching news about the border flight back to our respective homes in, uh, in the United States. And we were like, are we leaving a more safe place to a less safe place? We were watching this news unfold. And like, this is spreading so fast. There's no, this is the inevitable. And the concerns when we actually return home, we realized we actually left a much safer place in Southwestern Africa, uh, but and arriving into the United States of America. And we were just waiting for the inevitable, which it actually came true when you know a week or two later it was all over the news it's all over the news i'm reading about it i'm seeing it broadcast i'm following the stories you're living it mm-hmm. <laughs> you are absolutely on the front line and so for all of us uh listening to my voice today it's we were reading the stories about the healthcare workers and the heroes that are showing up and we need to hunker down uh to give them a break well the ones we were reading about ultimately doing the work wearing the capes were you, it was you and your team. Uh, talk about when you recognize that this was far more than just a visit or two or a couple cases, but this thing was going to become a radical pandemic that was gonna change an awful lot of lives. The, the first day when I saw five people coming all at once on the board and it was exposure, 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 exposure. I'm like, this is a little, this is a little off. Like we already have too many patients here. And the time, it's not like flu A, flu B, or hospital-acquired pneumonia went away. They were coming in for something that didn't exist. We didn't have tests at the time because they read about the news and they were worried and they were scared, but they were coming and getting exposed to all the other viruses that we always try to keep, you know, 
at-risk patients away from. And that's when I knew it was like, well, what if this, what if this is three weeks ahead and people came in for a test and it was COVID in the air? And I was like, oh no, the irony is at the right. time, even the first, safest day was my first day of the job. There was no COVID at the time, but people were scared about it. And they were coming with a, you know, this, this, this desire to test for it because the tickle in their throat made them remind them of that. I saw the beginning of a, a long journey. If it was just five and, and March 8th, and then the next day it was 10, and then it was 20, and then symptoms started rising a week later. And it, unfortunately, it was actually matching exactly the timing of exposure to symptoms. And I was like, this is it. We're here. Everyone's now, instead of the chief claiming exposure, 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 it was cough, 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 shortness, about shortness, about chest pain, cough, 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 you know, fatigue, diarrhea. And then when the patient started dying a week after that, it was just matching too well for me to just say, I don't like this movie. Get me out of here. I, 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 but a movie, you can turn it off. You can, even the best movie in the world, you'd be like, oh, you know what? I'm not into it. I uh, wonder what's for dinner today. Uh, this, I was living this horror show and I couldn't get out. And I was going home knowing that the next day I'll have to rewatch this movie over and over. And I didn't know when this movie was going to end. That's what I felt like. So you're talking about the movie and it's easy for us to imagine like, oh, gosh, that sounds hard. I, I bet that was tiring. You know, uh, I think it was far more hard and far more tiring and far more deadly than what we are uh, even imagining as we think about the movie that is in your mind and now in your life. Talk about what it's like to go from having a full ER to having beds lined up up and down the halls of the ER and people lined in to get in from the outside. And this thing is not completely out of control. It's one thing for us, doctor, to read about it and to see CNN or Fox or MSNBC shoot a camera down the street toward this. But ultimately, these patients are walking or being rolled towards you. Yeah, it's... I've seen things that would give people nightmares for the rest of their lives that the camera crews that come in and they shoot, you know, they can go home and, and New York was shut down at that point. It was empty. So you can have a nice walk without running to another soul. We weren't aware of that life. We were in the emergency room. So I couldn't leave. I couldn't turn off this movie. And I tried to depersonalize this experience by referring in the language of movies, um, partly because that's how I see the world, uh, but that's also how I can actually see it from an objective point of view. But I have to keep watching this horrible movie play out, knowing that it's gonna be like this for weeks to come at least. And to see the ERs completely lined up with stretchers and seeing every one of them, and it, coming back with what we talked about travel, where like every, everybody's story is deep and personal and meaningful. Knowing right. that each of these stretchers is a human being with their own stories, with their own life, with their own past, with, with memories of beautiful, a, a life that was so beautiful before this happening. And all of a sudden they're on the stretcher, which I write in a, in a poem in the book about what they could be possibly thinking before the next minute, it could be their, the, the breath that goes in and it could be no breath that comes out. And I couldn't do anything about it. That was unforgiving. That was helpless. That, that was helplessness. You use a term that I, it must have been painful to write it. It must have been far harder to live it. Rationing care. Talk, talk about rationing care. Yeah, it's rationing care is when you have a decision that you have to make that will lead to the harm of one person in order to save someone else, which means you are withholding treatments because you only have that one treatment left, and but you have multiple people that may need it. And it's as I had said before, it's feeling like you live this life with purpose and you found a job that gives you fulfillment and meaning and having that meaning stripped away from you, having that purpose ripped away from your hands 
because you are now doing a disservice to someone that could have otherwise lived. You feel so purposelessness mm -hmm. with that person because we were trained in this medical society in the United States of America that we have enough resources to do everything for everyone. And now we're in a position where you have to do the most for the most number of people, which means some people are going to get left out. And it's easy to think that like, oh, I know that's like a big decision, you know, big sweeping decision, but that's easy for someone up there to make because they're not in the trenches, seeing people face to face and realizing each one of them have lives and memories and desires and hopes and wishes that are specific to them. When you're in it and you're facing these people face to face, that's unforgiving. Again, I have to use that word because, you know, as we, we use wartime um, analogies to describe what COVID was like. It's one thing to drop bombs on a big village, which is still traumatic. There's another thing of looking eye to eye with the person that you're about to kill. Uh, soldiers will talk about that. Like there's, it's, there's, it's, it's completely different. So when, I'm not saying that we killed, but it's withholding treatment felt like that. Yeah. Because we were taught to save everyone. And you know when we had to decide who gets the ventilator or there was a decision where we had to arrive at that point. Luckily, we not, a lot of us didn't have to um, do a lot of that. But I think even EMS being told they can't bring cardiac arrest patients to the hospital because there's just too many calls felt like rationing care. You know, having to intubate and having ICU say, don't intubate, we don't have any beds. There's no way to take care of them. They're just going to die down there, save the tube. Felt like rationing care. And that felt like I was causing harm when we all of us swore an oath to do no harm. You talked a moment ago about the soldiers in the front line and from our work and from, you know, collectively our knowledge of soldiers returning home, many return home with PTSD in your own world and in the lives of those that you served alongside with you are losing patience. You're experiencing this trauma. You're losing coworkers, both due to COVID, but also due to suicide afterwards. T talk about dealing with PTSD and, and some ways for those of us who might be struggling with that in one way or another, that it might benefit us to also consider managing our own PTSD. The irony is that the healer becomes the patient. The yeah. healer is the patient. We, we forget to appreciate that the person on the other side that is trying to take care of you is a human being as well. They have their own thoughts, emotions, insecurities, imposter syndrome, stories, memories, things that build up and you know, baggage at home, the worries are their own. They have to go to homes where they can't even touch their families because they had COVID or whatever things that we're going through right now of work stress. The, even the mundane is, can feel overwhelming after something like COVID. The context has changed. The circumstance is over. I mean, 7 p.m. applause every night is, was, was great. It lifted us a little bit, but that's gone now. And who is being left with the leftovers, the things to pick up the pieces? And that's the healthcare workers that were there who, who rose to the occasion because they had to, but also some of us wanted to, and some of us felt like there was no other choice to. And now society has largely moved on and we're still working day in, day out. But something has shifted. A needle has shifted in the context of healthcare. And we know something is wrong, just like how I grew up in my childhood. I have a roof over my head. I had an education. Mom and dad took care of me. They loved me in the way they could. But something felt off and wrong. And I know it's not something that should be ignored. And that's how we feel right now. We have a job. We still have a purpose to go to. What a great job to have. COVID is more or less manageable now. Everyone, mostly everyone's vaccinated. Wonderful. But something is off. 
a needle is shifted and we don't know if it's the culture of medicine that's making it worse, this PTSD worse, or it's our own PTSD, or it's conflated hand in hand together, making you know it hard to separate the chaff from the wheat. And a lot of us don't take the time to speak out about this. You know, we are healthcare workers that were taught to advocate for our patients more than for us. Mm-hmm. And when we become the patients, the irony is that we don't know how to advocate for ourselves because none of us have been taught how to do that. Because we always put others before ourselves in our medical training. Speak to the doctors, the nurses, the technicians, the transporters, the EMTs, and the moms, the teachers, the dads, the stay-at-home folks, the folks who've lost friends and family members during the season on how we can begin to take care of ourselves, to breathe again, to get healthy again, to heal, and to become whole. How do we take the next right step collectively? Acknowledge it, honor it, and give it the space where you can arrive eventually knowing that you are not alone. This is an event that has happened to all of us, the entire world. It's a worldwide pandemic that we share as a collective trauma. And while that is not something that I am happy about, I wish that never happened, it can also be reframed as an opportunity to know that the person next to you and there are people out there who know what you went through, even if you never met them before, because it was an event that we all shared together and overcome in many different ways. And there's a diversity of ways of healing. Not everyone can heal by talking about it. Not everyone can heal by writing about it. Not everyone can heal by traveling or going, you know, or doing, you know, physical exercise or meditation, but you will find a way to heal. And it's, you're going to be your personal way to know that there's a diversity of other ways of doing it by sharing your grief and your experiences with other people, knowing that they've also went through it because this is a worldwide pandemic may provide a sense of solace and context uh, so that you know that you're not truly alone and have to do this by yourself. There are uh, seven questions we ask every one of our guests. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. Yep. But before we get there, doctor, I do want to quote back to you three of my favorite quotes from your book. Uh, I wrote down a whole bunch more than three, but here come three rapid fire quotes for you. Tell me what you mean when you say these words. Whoever said only sunshine brought happiness has never danced in the rain. That is the idea that storms or sun, we can always dance in them. It's easy to dance in the sun, but what makes one of a character that I want to be around is the people who dance in the sun and the rain. You can dance all the time. Life is a dance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why not dance in the rain? Because that's what brings about the harvest in the monsoon. We either die heroes ignored or live long enough to become villains castigated. That is the understanding that when the 7 p.m. applause started happening, I was standing there and I was like, how long is this going to last before they need society needs a scapegoat? I don't want to come off as a pessimist, but there is understanding that as a a person who's traveled, a student of history, after every trauma, society needs something to blame. Mm -hmm. And what better scapegoat and what more convenient one to assign as a scapegoat than the people who can't speak for themselves. And that's us. We didn't ask people to applaud for us. They came to us and they applauded for us. I loved that. It lifted us, but they didn't pay off my student loans. (laughs) They're no longer around. uh, And we, they don't, we still struggle with PTSD. And not only that, we now see the wave of people who are like, was it really that bad? People who don't believe in the, 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 the progress in, science, you know, in, in healthcare that we've achieved by managing COVID 
is an blowback. And I know it's going to be the people who don't ask for it. Just like we don't ask, didn't ask for the applause, we're not going to ask for the, the harm that's going to come to us. And that, that's an easy, convenient scapegoat because we don't know how to fight back. And this was one of your last lines from the book, but it says this, 10 years of imposter syndrome, cognitive dissonance, learned helplessness, endless, boundless doubt. And yet, and yet, privilege and gratitude. Th that actually relates me to your story. Sometimes we wonder if, would we be the same person if that horrible, so on the surface, horrible thing that happened to us in our childhood didn't happen. And I wonder, that endless, boundless doubt comes from, if my dad hadn't died and he was around, would I still have it had in me to live for myself? I mean, maybe in another multiverse we'll find that out, but I struggle to know if I really had it in me and I, if it needed something to happen for me to actually live for myself. And I struggle with that. You know, there are people who like have it all and then they burn their money and they go into the woods and live there or travel the world. And I have respect for them because they didn't, there was no, there's no event. It was, they just realized it and they woke up and they left. And for, for people like us, we had events. And hearing you say that, you know, you, you don't regret it gave me a sense of what we had, my prior answer, I didn't feel as alone. I don't regret it either. I don't regret that happening. Uh, and to know someone else feels the same way and is grateful for an experience like that. I don't, I don't, I feel like I don't have to question it as much. And that's where the gratitude comes in. What well, is with gratitude, my friend, that we turn away from uh, our formal interview into the final seven questions. We're going to put on our tennis shoes and sprint through the halls one final time together. So here we go. Dr. Calvin's son, what is the most influential or impactful book you've ever read? So it's a little biased that it would be A Year Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. My dad died. And just being able to read that that week, a little soon, but necessary. When I was traveling, The Alchemist and Life of Pi back to back. <laughs> the Alchemist almost always makes my list when people ask me that. I, I just think there's something in the simplicity and brilliance of that little story that reminds us that what we're seeking is already within us. Absolutely. And it's something we have to remind ourselves every day. Even I have to tell myself that it's a mantra now. What, what is one positive characteristic or one trait you possessed as a little kid growing up in New York that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Eager curiosity, the lack of cynicism. If your home condo apartment caught fire and you had an opportunity to run back in and save one thing that mattered. So all the roommates, all the partners, all the animals okay. have an opportunity to save one thing. What is the one item you would race and save? My diary that I've kept since I was six. It's about this thick black and white marble notebook. Uh, it reminds me how eagerly curious I was. I'm still curious now, but with that, that eagerness, that, that earnestness, the innocence, I'm nostalgic for it. If you could sit on a Central Park bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Actually, my father, my father, I'm wondering why. And if he's still there trying to protect me, there are things that have happened in my life that I can't quite explain. And you know, whether these warm hands that I feel are my grandfather's, my father's, or Sonia's, uh, mm. it's there. 
there are things I can't quite explain that have led me to this point, even this conversation. And uh, to see if my father is one of them would, I don't want to say I need it, but it would be truly gratifying to feel his presence in a loving sense one more time. Hmm. I would imagine that would be full that conversation of a lot of silence, hopefully a lot of hugs, probably a lot of questions, but what's one thing you, you would like to say to him? What do you mean when you said you were proud of me? I don't need it, but I think, I, I think you need it. I think you need to hear yourself say it. You don't have to answer me, but write it down. And then before you go, I'll read it when I'm ready. What's the best advice, dad, mom, your grandfather, Sonia, anybody else has ever given you? So the best advice you've ever received is? Sleep well, eight to nine hours every night. That is actually a habit I've kept since middle school, and I'm grateful for them. Too. I feel like you're lying. I, I've read your book, Ben. It seems like you are a working machine. The, the caveat, if I need to give myself a little grace, is at least eight to nine hours of sleep every 24 hours. <laughs> so, okay. you know, sometimes I'll have six hours and I'll try to make up for it. Obviously, I'm not going to be perfect, but I strive for eight to nine hours. And I have this little, now that I'm tra the travels, I have this little app that um, helps me deal with jet lag that still gets me the nine hours um, in short naps. What would you tell your 20-year-old self a year or two after your father passes away? What advice would you whisper into your, into, uh, your former self? Trust the process. The people around you are not there by accident. You deserve all the love in the world. And the people around you that you question whether you deserve them have chosen you for a specific reason, even if they don't know it. They want to be there for you. They are there for you. And don't squander the opportunity to get to know each and every one of them as lifelong partners and friends. Uh, and just know that you are not meant to be abandoned. And as much as you want to live, live life alone and do life on hard, you don't have to. Happiness is best shared. Dr. Calvin's son, Ted, speaker, author, ER physician, friend, sojourner, global traveler. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? It depends, <laughs> period. <laughs> Dr. Calvinson, my friend, it does depend. And we thank you for uh, making it matter. Your, your life has, your work has, your words have, and we're grateful for you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so, and again, channeling gratitude that I have this space with you. And thank you for sharing your story as well so that people like us can thrive and exist and feel seen. My friends, that is Dr. Calvin Sun. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I do have a confession to make. I hope you're seated. I love the interview portions of our programs, but honestly, it is the Live Inspired 7 that is almost always my favorite part. It's hearing a guest share an impactful book that I might add to my reading list. Hopefully, some of you are adding to yours, or I'm moved by the meaningful items that they'd run back into a burning house to save. Maybe you're moved by that as well. Today, I was in awe of Dr. Calvin's son's response to wanting to sit on a bench with his dad. 
and the desire to ask him, do you remember it? Dad, why did you say that you're proud of me? Why did you say you're proud of me? As Calvin's son mentioned, it was shortly after a fight that his father unexpectedly passed away, and Calvin's son never got to hear the answer to that question, why did you say you're proud of me? Today, right now, I'm going to challenge you to do something. Don't just listen to the podcast. Don't just subscribe. Don't just share. I love all those things. Thank you for it. But I want you to take another step. Take a few moments right now. Tomorrow's not promised. Right now. Text. Call. Email. Visit. Heck, you can send a carrier pigeon to someone that you are proud of, that you love, and I want you to tell them why. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't have them wondering why you're proud of them, or if you were. Do it right now. If you enjoy today's... Oh, you haven't done it yet. I'll wait. All right, hit pause. Text a loved one. Let them know you love them and you're proud of them. Tell them why. All right, now you can hit play again. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider listening to my conversation with Lisa Brennan Jobs. She is the daughter of the late Steve Jobs, founder of Apple. You may remember that name. While widely recognized as one of the most influential investors and inventors and creators and leaders of our time and probably any time by pioneering the personal computer and not stopping there because then came the iPod and then the iPhone and music and animation. I mean, Steve was incredible, no doubt about it. She's going to share the complicated relationship as a daughter to this man. It's an amazing story. It's a tragic story, but it's ultimately a redemptive story for those of us who apply those lessons. If you'd like to learn more about Lisa's perspective on her dad and parenting and life, it's a worthy one. Check it out at episode 216. And if you're not sure where to find that, let me help you with it. Go to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. One more time, leaders, John O'Leary, inspires.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find it at episode 216. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, leaders, all family and friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community. I want to thank you for subscribing to the podcast, for sharing the podcast, and now for leaving out the message within the podcast. Thank you for believing like I do that the foundation is firm, that headwind is real, that the challenges are fierce, but that your life is a gift. It is a sacred gift and that the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Achilleans get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Achilleans were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keeliancompanies.com.